everybody. Sorry we're a little bit late today. Um, I'm Lisa Salberg uh, from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association and your host for Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the HCMA. Today I am joined again by Dr. Martin Marin of Tufts Medical Center and the uh, Mass HCM Center in Morristown. And welcome to the broadcast again, Marty Marin. Lisa, always good to be here with you, and hello to all the HCM community out there that's tuning in. Hello. So you and I started this little adventure a couple months ago saying, okay, what do we want to do with this podcast? And we thought that we would start with a good basis of education about the foundation of HCM. Lisa, by the way, I just want you to know, I, I made sure that there are no flies in here. So I, I, I took care of that. I, just wanted to let you know. I know you were worried about that, and I was too, because the last thing I would want to do would be, you know what, compared to the last fly. So I eliminated all of that, um, just so you know. So you don't have to worry about that. That was not fair. <laughs> uh, okay, well, you know, you thought it was going to be a dry, boring conversation about cardiac imaging and HCM, but here we go. We start with some humor. So HCM is serious, so sometimes we got to light it up a bit. So thank you for that. So imaging and HCM. We figured we would start with how HCM is first found. So I wanted to take a little history lesson and a walk through technology with you to figure out how we got to, to some squiggly lines on uh a monitor, if you want to call something about that big a monitor, um, and how we got to today and where we might be going. Yeah. Yeah, it's really actually one of the more interesting stories, I think, in HCM. I think, you know, we have to put it into context first for for everybody sort of tuning in. I think, you know, everybody sort of t at this point in time takes for advantage, advantage uh, assumptions that the echocardiogram, for example, is pretty routine. We, we come in, we get our echocardiogram, the heart ultrasound, and then you know we go on and and and, and have our visit. Um, and we often look at the the patients often look at the images while they're having the echo, which look you know very sharp, um, very clear, and give us so much information. The the fact of the matter, if you kind of go back though in time, the first echocardiogram did not even emerge timeline wise until really the early 80s, you know, essentially early to mid 1980s, there was some echo before that, which was called M mode echo, but that didn't give us the kind of pictures that we, you know, appreciate today. It gave us some information um, that was helpful about the walls and the valve, but not to the extent that what we call the 2D or two-dimensional echo does. And that didn't even come, you know, it wasn't even available until the early to mid-80s. In fact, you were one of the first patients, I believe, who had a 2D echo for ATM in New Jersey. Is that right? In our community hospital, Dover yeah. General, which is now part of St. Clair's, um, my cardiologist, Dr. Paul Goldfinger, um, mm -hmm. who's still, I'm in contact with, he lives in South Jersey. Um, so he... Pushed, and he was an adult cardiologist too, sent me over to Dover General. Um, I had to go downstairs. Okay, downstairs in a hospital is kind of a creepy place to go when you're a kid, even when you're an adult. So it was downstairs in this corner office at the end of a hallway where it could be really dark and quiet because there was um, Doppler as well. Mm. And I can remember, I was in there for a good two hours with this, yeah. looked like yeah. it looked like a fish finder. I looked right. like I was looking at a fish finder and I had no idea what they were looking at, but they looked very concerned. Yeah. 
like a, a video game almost, uh, mm -hmm. one of the early video games. Yeah. And so people then, so, so then you may ask then, so, okay, if it wasn't until the early 1980s, mid 1980s that we had Echo, how was the diagnosis made um, before? Many people listening may know, I mean, we've appreciated and understood uh, a lot about HCM since 1960. So how do we explain that? And the fact of the matter is, is that um, that physicians would have to use and did use auscultation, meaning the stethoscope, the EKG, and also catheterization, the cath lab um, with fluoroscopy, which is a you know invasive procedure um, with radiation. But they used those early techniques. Um, which, you know, in a lot of ways are incredibly rudimentary when we talk about the 2D echo, but they used them so effectively um, and reliably, they were able to make the diagnosis and, and really to describe many, many, many of the features of HCM even before we had echocardiography. Um, and, and one of the, you know, one of the people that spearheaded that was in fact, Dr. Eugene Brunwald, who at the National Institutes of Health in the 50s and 60s was the first to really describe HCM, the first 64 patients with HCM ever really described clinically using auscultation, EKG, and the cath lab information to piece together a lot about this disease. In fact, a lot of what he wrote about in the first 64 patients using those techniques decades before echo are true even today. It's amazing. So that's, that's a little bit about the briefly, a little bit about the history of how HCM began from an imaging standpoint. So we get to the point where the equipment, the echocardiography equipment is now being deployed throughout the, the country into hospitals right. and eventually into doctor's offices through the 80s and 90s, um, and it's easier to get an echo. But are all echoes the same in terms of quantity and quality of images, and what are you really looking for in the echocardiogram? What are the features of the heart that are important? Yeah, so the echocardiogram... And, and, and let me just translate, that's just ultrasound of the heart. It's the same kind of ultrasound that um, you get if, if, if uh, you're looking at other parts of the body and pregnant women get ultrasounds to look at the, at, the, at the fetus. Same principle, same imaging principle, just applied to the heart. And, and basically what you're able to get out of that information-wise is an enormous, enormous amount of information um, that includes the following you get a assessment with the echo about how thick the heart muscle is and therefore can determine if the thickness of the heart is increased and consistent then with a diagnosis of HCM. And so in fact, it is how we have, we have relied and then on echo to make the diagnosis of HCM because of its ability to show us increase in wall thickness. The e, just to put that up against the electrocardiogram, the EKG, the EKG is abnormal in 90% of patients, but there are all kinds of different abnormalities and not one of them is specific necessarily for HCM. So you need the echo to make the diagnosis and it hasn't done that. And it has done that in fact, reliably now over several decades. In addition to that, 
you get a lot of information about the heart pump function, what we call the ejection fraction, tells us how vigorous the heart is pumping. You get a very good assessment of the valves of the heart. And in this disease, we are focused on, in particular, the mitral valve, which is the valve regulating blood flow from the left upper heart, called the left atrium, to the left ventricle because the mitral valve is all involved in causing in two thirds of patients obstruction to blood flow. Okay. And you can see that the obstruction with the echo and with the echo can measure reliably how much extra pressure, meaning the gradient, how much extra pressure the obstruction is, is, is causing in an individual patient. And that pressure gradient is so important because it determines how we treat patients who have symptoms from it. And so essentially then to summarize, the echocardiogram really has been the workhorse you know, for HCM for several decades now because it provides the opportunity for reliable and consistent diagnosis, assessment of wall thickness in that way, obstruction from the mitral valve, and heart function, as well as the function of other valves and other chambers of the heart that could also be involved sometimes as well. So I'm going to take this down two notches, um, and I'm going to say normal values. So the most important things we're looking at in terms of HCM, in terms of numbers and values, are wall measurements. So a normal wall measurement in an adult would be what? A normal wall thickness in an adult, and the thickness is, 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 is derived from, we're talking about the left lower chamber of the heart, the left ventricle. That's the, that's the part of the heart that's involved in HCM. When the wall thickness is 15 millimeters or more, anywhere in that left ventricle, most often it's in the part called the septum, which is the part of the left ventricle that's dividing the two bottom chambers, but it can be anywhere in the left ventricle a measurement of 15 millimeters or more can be consistent with a diagnosis of HCM. I'll also say that measurements of 13 to 14 millimeters are also in certain certain circumstances considered abnormal as well and can be consistent with a diagnosis of HCM as well, particularly in a patient who has a wall thickness of 13 or 14 millimeters who has a family history of HCM. So that means that less than that, 12 millimeters or less, is generally considered the normal range for wall thickness. So an important aspect of HCM and the history and the evolution of echocardiography is the ability to better image the heart. The way I explain it to people is an echo from the 80s is like watching a grainy TV from the 60s. And an echo today is HDTV. We've got sharper images. And we're going to talk about MRI in a few minutes. But just in the echo, when you're looking at all of the pieces of the heart, the septum, the apex, the, the lateral wall, in terms of thickness, are there challenges with imaging all of these parts equally? And are we gaining an appreciation for new anatomy because of better imaging going on now? Yeah, so the answer, is, the answer is that there can be some areas of the heart muscle, for example, that are not well seen or not seen well enough with the echo, and therefore that represents 
a limitation sometimes of the echo in certain people. And that can be a re the reason that is the case sometimes is, you know, sometimes patients body habitus, that means the chest wall, if there's a lot of space between the chest and the heart, in some patients, there can be uh, more space than others, um, depending on their anatomy. Uh, also, um, rib spacing can make it difficult sometimes to you know, introduce the probe into areas that allow for the best imaging. That can just be a, a, another issue. Uh, many patients probably have experienced the probe um, with the sonographer, you know, really pushing up against the ribs, trying to get the best images, but sometimes, right, sometimes yeah, it do doesn't work. Do. That's right. That's right. So there are some limitations to with respect to anatomy and also to ultrasound itself. It's really good, the resolution, but sometimes it's not good enough. And so sometimes for that reason, we may not be able to see well enough certain aspects that we would like to see better. And when that happens, and what's one reason that we move to incorporating other techniques that can help fill those gaps in. Let's talk about contrast, a contrast yeah. agent during echo. What is yeah. that? Is it dangerous? Is it safe? What is that contrast agent and yeah. when do you use it? In, it it's, it's in general very safe. It's, a, it's, it's an intravenous injection of what's mostly considered agitated saline um, that's introduced, you know, at the time of the echo, and it's a contrast. I mean, it's just a bright substance that's injected, as I said, and therefore then travels into the circulation and then comes into the heart to highlight. It helps to highlight the contrast, the walls of the heart in a way that is better than if contrast is not given. So if you have a patient then who has an area that we can't see that well because of one of these limitations we just spoke about, contrast can sometimes be given to help overcome that issue. I remember at the, uh, the end of my last heart, strange thing to say, but we couldn't get good images at the apex right. uh, because right. there was so much diastolic dysfunction and we couldn't see what was going on. So we use contrast. Not out of my... Uh, 30 year plus experience with having echoes. It was the only time I ever had contrast was that one time. Yeah. So it wasn't common. Yeah. So let's talk about another echo technique that I can tell you patients aren't really fond of, but we have to do it sometimes. And that's transesophageal echo. So maybe, what's the difference? Maybe before we get to that oh, sure. one, maybe it's helpful to, we were on, I, I thought we were on the thought process of numbers for a minute. Oh, we sure. I'm so sorry. I jumped, I jumped past that. Let, yeah, yeah, let's go back to the numbers. Um, and thank you. Other for important numbers that, yeah. that, that patients um, rightfully so, so are focused on. Yeah. You did say, so I want to be clear to people because some people use centimeters and some use millimeters. For those Americans who didn't get a lot of metrics training in school, it's just a moving of the decimal point. So that's 15 right. is 1.5, 13 is 1.3, and that's okay. One thing I want you to talk about before we get into other abnormal numbers, I would say the average. Num abnormal number for us is about 20. Like a septum measurement 20, about 20. 20 or 21 is the average yeah. thickness for HCM. Yeah, but it can be yeah. lower and it can be way higher. So we have right. that. That's our normal is under 12. Abnormal is over that. HCM is definitively 1.5 or 15 or higher. And right. those numbers can bounce. Now, what if you get an echo today and your septal measurement is 1.8? And in a year, it's 2.1. Do 
Did you get worse or is there something else going on there potentially? Well, so yeah, that's a great question. And, and, and that comes up a lot um, in questions when we're, we're seeing patients. So this is, this is how I would answer that is that um, in general, as a principle, wall thickness in HCM does not increase over time when a patient reaches adulthood, okay? So that means that the thickness that you have in general at the end of puberty or maturation is the wall thickness that you're going to have for most of your life. That doesn't mean that things can't change within the structure of the muscle itself or other reasons to cause, you know, potentially symptoms or rhythm issues, but the the principle that the heart gets thicker and thicker and thicker and thicker as you go through life is just not true. It's not true. There can be adult now, onset. Right. Now, there are exceptions to that, <laughs> just like there are in any area of science and medicine and, and life. There are always exceptions. And, and HCM is no different. So there can be some patients in whom they develop HCM later in life, third or fourth decade. And there are even some patients that do for reasons that we don't really understand well can have significant changes in thickness in adulthood as well. Okay. So, um, and that's, and so that's, that's the principle. So for this example, you just raised, you know, it most likely that change uh, between 18 millimeters to 21 millimeters one year apart in an adult may just reflect variability in measurements that can sometimes happen in, in, in this technique, depending on the expertise of the center and readers, there can be variability. Or it could be a real change. Uh, that's just less likely. So the way I like to explain it to people is think about a plus minus of 0.2. So your 18 right. might have been a 20 and your 21 might be a 19. So you're right in the same ballpark. So don't panic over a slight change in number. What's another key those number? Are millimeter. Those are millimeter, millimeter differences. So people need to realize, yeah, we're talking about millimeter differences. So 18 and 21 seems like a big difference just because of the absolute value, but we're talking about millimeters there. And so people have to realize, and I think it's obviously with that said, you know, it's, 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 it can reflect just human variability in measurements. So what's the other key measurements people should know? The other key one, you know, for sure is the measurement that is associated with obstruction left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. Remember, when we talk about obstruction, that's, that's the gradient. They're, they're, they're referring to the same issue. And again, that's a phenomenon where the mitral valve makes an abnormal motion during the ejection phase of the heart when, heart's, when the heart's pumping blood out. The valve then makes an abnormal motion and then gets in the way of blood flow, essentially. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. And the, and the analogy we use is that if you have a garden hose um, and you clamp down on it, then water backs up. And in this case, with obstruction, it's blood backing up into the left ventricle very quickly and very momentarily, but enough time to cause the pressures to be higher. And that extra pressure in the heart is a quantity that's measurable with the echo, okay, using certain techniques. And the 
gradient number starts at 30, three zero millimeters of mercury and higher, okay? So it goes from 30 all the way up to as high as potentially 100 or 200 millimeters of mercury even, okay? Um, we, so, so we consider, with that said, that's a huge range, but we would consider that 50, five zero millimeters of mercury, either at rest or a gradient that occurs with exertion or provocation. So 50 millimeters of mercury in either of those situations can be responsible. It's high enough, I should say, to be responsible in some patients for causing symptoms. So it's a big range, 300 to 250 though, or higher is usually high enough to maybe cause symptoms in patients. And sometimes people can be symptomatic when their resting gradient is, is 30 and you can't provoke them at that moment, but they might provoke under other circumstances, That's dehydration, right. exhaustion, they're sick. So if they're symptomatic, they should really be communicating with their doctors. On, on what the symptoms are that they're feeling so that maybe you can medicate them away better. Um, and, I, and by the way, on that note, I just want to make sure we're clear on this because it's really important because we get asked this a lot is, and you made me, you reminded me of that, is that the gradient number that we're just talking about, we, we, de we describe it as dynamic. It just means that it's not, that number is not always the same, even beat to beat, minute to minute, or sometimes even day to day, it can it can fluctuate because of what Lisa just said, what we call loading conditions, just how hydrated or how dehydrated a patient may be can change that number a little bit. Okay, and sometimes and rarely can change it a lot even sometimes. So it's not fixed, it's dynamic. Okay. And so what that means then is that sometimes patients come in and say, my cardiologist told me, that my gradient keeps going up every year and I'm here to see you because my gradient now is three times higher than it was two years ago, okay? Most likely, it's not that the gradient number has continued to increase. It's probably always been about that high in general, but when it's assessed at a one particular point in time for a patient, it may be a little lower than another time, okay? So it's not that gradients themselves continue to increase. It has to do with the dynamic nature of gradients and when they are assessed, meaning when the echo is done. Okay, so you mentioned provocation during yeah. an echo. How do you provoke somebody? Yeah, so provoking is done in HCM when a patient comes usually to the echo lab and they don't have obstruction at rest lying on the table, okay? And we know that about one-third of patients with HCM will have obstruction at rest, one-third will have it with provocation, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, and one-third are non-obstructed. So that means that if you don't have obstruction at rest when you're just lying there on the echo lab table, then what usually will happen is that the team taking care of you will do one or more different, what we call maneuvers to try to bring out the gradient, okay? And that could take the form of a number of different 
uh, 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 provocation maneuvers. Could be asking you during the echo to bear down, um, like you're having a bowel movement. That's a maneuver that can provoke the gradient. I mean, bring it out if it's not there under resting condition. Can you explain a little bit why tightening the abdominal muscles makes the heart change how it's functioning? Yeah, so I'm not going to, it's, it's a little complicated, but I'll make it simple by just saying that when you bear down like that, you change the pressures in the abdomen and also change the pressures that the heart is seeing because of that. And those changes in pressure in the heart are changes that can bring out obstruction in a certain way, okay? And, and that kind of is a way of mimicking what happens with patients just on a normal daily basis with routine activities. So it's a way of trying to represent that a little artificially because you're still at rest and you're bearing down, but it's a way of showing what could be happening with exertion. So right? prior to echocardiography, this phenomenon could be heard through a stethoscope and That's it right. is known as the heart murmur associated with HCM, correct? That's right. That's right. Heart murmur is a general term. It just refers to increased sound that you hear when you're using the stethoscope. But in, the, in HCM, the obstruction, because it's impeding flow and creating turbulence, which just means you know high velocity of flow, right, exactly, that can, that's, that can be heard as a murmur. So another number I think is important for patients to kind of keep track of. You don't live your numbers. You just kind of put them in the back of your mind and say, this is where I'm trending, um, is left atrial size. Why does yep. that matter in HCM? Well, the left atrium, which is the left upper chamber, um, so blood coming back to the heart from the lungs with oxygen first goes to the left atrium, and then it goes to the left ventricle through the mitral valve. The left atrial size, which again can be reliably measured, the diameter of it, with echo, is, a, is an important number to kind of keep track of because as the left atrium can increase in size in HCM, okay? There's different reasons why that can happen, but when it does increase in size or diameter, then that is tightly linked to an increased risk of developing atrial fibrillation, an irregular rhythm of the top chamber, okay? And the reason that is the case is that when the left atrium gets bigger, it's expanding a little bit and it, its structure is abnormal, right? Yeah. So, so that just is a reflection of abnormal structure in the wall of the left atrium. And AFib or atrial fibrillation originates from part of the left atrium, okay? So if it gets bigger, it means that it's the, the wiring is a little bit more faulty there in a way. It's just easier then to trigger atrial fibrillation. Which can lead to stroke, which is important which to keep an eye on when you're at risk. Stroke. That's right. Exactly. That's right. Another number, ejection fraction. You know, my favorite right. topic. Yeah, that's right. So ejection fraction, you may, you may hear it as EF is a uh, measurement, again, made typically on the echo, looking at all the different views, then the interpreter will decide on a number that reflects how vigorous the heart is pumping, okay? How hard, how well 
the heart is pumping blood out. That is called the ejection fraction. The normal value for ejection fraction in the general population is 50% or higher, 50, usually between 50 and 75%. Okay, that's the normal ejection fraction. When it falls below that, that increases, that means that their heart isn't pumping normally for whatever reason and can increase risk of a number of different adverse complications. In HCM, which is a disease where the pump function is actually stronger than the normal pump function in patients in the general population without HCM, means that the ejection fractions on average for HCM patients are higher than non-HCM patients. So the average ejection fraction is more like 60%, and we often see numbers like 65, 70, 75, even 80%, just reflecting that vigorous contraction that is representative of HCM. So when EFs, why is it important to know your EF? Is it normal for HCM or am I trending lower? Right. And if you start to trend lower, this is a different level of conversation. And it's right. just a conversation at that point. You just want to keep an eye on these numbers. So wall measurement, gradient, atrial measurement, and EF. I think those are a pretty good starting point for people to understand. Obviously, there's a lot of other data that you get out of an echocardiogram. But for the average patient, I think these are the key numbers to look at. And the other question they may ask is, are there any abnormalities with my papillary muscles or with my chordae? And you can give them that answer if these apparatus within the heart, which we don't talk about very much, um, are affected by HCM as well, right? Yes, exactly. That's a little bit more difficult to, to, to assess sometimes. And it doesn't often show up. Those details may not show up. Um, in the reports uh, uh, because of a number of reasons. But the other number, by the way, just to mention one other thing is, the, is that when you have obstruction, one other issue that can come along with that, that that's, a, it's a, that's related to it, is leakiness of the mitral valve, mm -hmm. right? Called mitral regurgitation or MR. And um, that is assessed on the echo with another set of numbers, one to four usually, with one being minimal, two being a little bit more moderate, three being moderate to severe, and four plus being severe leakiness, okay? Typically, and the leakiness is important because that also can be why patients are short of breath too. If you have a lot of mitral regurgitation, that's another reason you could be symptomatic. One to two plus mitral regurgitation does not usually cause symptoms that, that a patient would feel day to day, but three plus and four plus could maybe. And so that's another number to look at as well. What about terminology on an echo report that uses things like mild, moderate, and severe? Are they as helpful as the actual numbers? Um, it's a tricky in general, question. In general terms, not as helpful usually. Um, but I would say that any of these descriptions, the number or the, 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 the qualitative term mild, moderate, severe, 
both of them really need to be put into context, meaning what their relevance is for an individual patient by the physician. I mean, that's, that's what, you know, has to happen. You have to take those numbers or subjective descriptions and translate them into something meaningful for the patient, meaning that sometimes moderate to severe may not require anything to be done, but other times it might. So again, it depends on the individual patient and what's going on. So there's a lot of interpretation and expertise that goes behind uh, a recommendation for those, those assessments, okay? So when the images aren't so clear, there's, mm. I, now I'm going to jump over to that other topic I was going to before. Um, when the images aren't so clear through the echo and you need to visualize things differently, there's another form of an echo that could be used. It's not yeah. common, but it does get used occasionally, and that's a transesophageal echo. I shouldn't say not commonly unless you're heading to a, a surgical suite, but um, what is a transesophageal echo and what do you gain from that versus a transthoracic or an outside of the body echo? Yeah, yeah. so a transesophageal echo or TEE is similar to maybe what patients have had with a scope for their stomach or um, what we call an EGD. It's a scope that is passed down the esophagus after receiving usually some medicine to, to, to calm a patient down with anti-anxiety anti medicine and anti-pain medicine to allow that probe to go down the esophagus and reside about mid to distal in the esophagus. And mm -hmm. the probe has a camera on the end. So what you've done is you've introduced a camera actually um, right next to the heart in the esophagus because the heart is adjacent to the esophagus actually. And so that camera being so close to the heart as opposed to the surface echo, which is much farther away than the TEE camera allows for much crisper pictures of the valves in particular, like the mitral valve and aortic valve, and also can in some ways give us also the, the same measurements of thickness, ejection fraction, and gradient that we get with the surface. But its greatest strength is evaluating the valves themselves. It's done not that much in HCM because we usually can get all the information we need to make a decision about treatment with the surface echo. Okay, but that's not always the case for the reasons we talked about. And so for some patients, for a number of different reasons, we may move to doing the TEE to get more information, okay, to help with management. Or you may have had a TEE to look for a blood clot in the left upper chamber if you have atrial fibrillation, because we need to make sure you don't have that if we're going to cardiovert you or electrically stimulate you out of atrial fibrillation. That's another way or another reason I should say HCM patients may get TEEs. And the third is what you mentioned. When you're asleep, if you're going to have a myectomy, you're usually asleep by this time. In, a, in an operation like a myectomy, the TEE is done to guide surgical progress, essentially. They can measure your gradient while you're- Before and after. Yeah, That's before right. and after gradient. That's right. That's right. 
So all of this technology has brought us so far and helped in our understanding and diagnosis of HCM. But then something came on the scene in the late 80s, early 90s in one way, and then we moved into cardiac MRI. We all, we all heard about MRIs and how they were better at different measurements and they could see things that x-rays couldn't. But now we moved it into cardiac. And this is an area that you spend a lot of your time and research on, cardiac MRI. So what is a cardiac MRI and how is it, how does it enhance the knowledge of what's going on inside that heart? Yep. So cardiac MRI is, 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 is done in the same MRI machine that an MRI of the spine or MRI of the knee or MRI of the head is done. So it's not a special machine, MRI machine. It does have certain additional capabilities to it that allow it to do MRI imaging specifically of the heart, but it's the same machine, MRI machine which you, you know, you lie flat and you go into what is a fairly narrow tube, which, you know, makes it difficult for some patients because of issues of claustrophobia. But the, the, the advantage of the MRI of the heart is that the MRI provides incredibly clear, high resolution images of the heart. And so what that means is that in the examples we were talking about before, where there can be sometimes patients where we don't see some areas that we would like to see by the echo, or we're not sure we're seeing things as reliably as we want to see them, like the wall thickness or the valve, MRI overcomes those limitations by the technique itself. It's not limited by body habitus issues. It's not limited by lung problems or rib cage or anything like that. So it will almost always give us very sharp images that allow us to make very reliable measurements of the thickness that could aid in making the right diagnosis of HCM or give us a better assessment or precise assessment of the wall thickness as well compared to echo. I want to stop you there for just a second because there's a technology issue that um, makes certain measurements in echo challenging and MRI crosses that barrier. So there are parts of the left ventricle that are difficult to image with an echocardiogram. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, there are certain areas that are in particular more challenging with echo. That's right. And when you move to MRI, those areas of the heart that are difficult via echo become quite apparent what's going on there. Obvious. That's right. They become obvious. That's right. And one of those areas, as this is probably where you're getting at, I'll just say that one of those areas in particular is the tip of the heart, the apex, apex, tip of the heart. That's a very hard area sometimes in patients to, to see well with echo because of its position in the chest cavity. MRI overcomes that and you can beautifully see the apex to confirm or not two things mostly, is there thickness there that would be consistent with what we call apical variant of HCM? Mm -hmm. Or do you have an aneurysm, a thinning of the apex, which is another type of HCM that is important to diagnose that can be missed as well with the echo, the aneurysm. So there's two areas of the apex that are particularly important it can be not well seen with echo, but reliably identified with MRI. So I'm going to bring up a, an observation of 
25 years, which makes me feel old. Um, but when we first started the HCMA, uh, and you look at the data back from the late 90s, apical HCM was thought to be in the Japanese population specifically, um, and it was thought to be less common. And over the last 10 to 15 years with advances in imaging technology, apical HCM is just a different place for hypertrophy, and it's not so rare, is it? Right. Yeah, it's not as rare as we thought. It's just another location where, as you said, increased thickness can occur. Still the same disease as HCM thickness in other places. Um, However, if you sort of take a look just at patients with apical HCM, because that thickness is often pretty limited and confined to just a very focal area of the heart, in general, their natural history is pretty benign. They, they often don't develop a lot of symptoms and their risk of rhythm problems is very low if you just sort of compare them to the non-apical HCM patients. Although there are there are variants in everything, so they could be That's less or right. they could be right. more, but they, they're right. more common than we thought, I think is the- They are more common, That's the right. imaging aspect of, of this uh, conversation. So what else can you do with MRI that you can't do with echo? The other, yeah, the other, you know, strength of MRI that we leverage it for in helping us manage patients with HCM is something that is a piece of information that we cannot get at all with echo. And that's a look into the muscle, actually. This is a technique with MRI where patients are injected with an, through an IV of a, a contrast agent called gadolinium, which is taken up into the heart, into areas where there's scar tissue. And scar tissue can form in HCM for a number of reasons, but the gadolinium injection can actually identify those areas as bright on the MRI pictures, okay? And what we now know about that, having studied that finding for now, you know, a better part of 10 years is that if you've got a lot of scarring by MRI, so a lot of uptake of the gadolinium in the heart muscle, that means that you could be at an increased risk for bottom chamber arrhythmias like ventricular tachycardia, the concerning bottom chamber rhythms. And therefore, for that reason, that technique, assessing the amount of scarring, is a technique we use to help us as one of the another factors to deciding whether a patient with HCM is at increased risk for sudden death and should be protected for that reason with an ICD device, essentially. So it's part of, essentially, the risk stratification strategy that we now use in HCM. So this is a newer marker. I believe it will be appropriately uh, brought out in the new guidelines document, which is coming soon and probably the topic of our next conversation. Uh, It should be out by then. Um, So what amount of SCAR is bad? Well, usually you would consider 15%, one five, 15% or more scarring in the heart muscle to be representative of what we'll call an extensive amount that has been shown in studies 
that when a patient has that amount or more, their risk of an abnormal rhythm is significantly increased. Okay. So what if somebody has 14% scar? Well, that's, that's when we use things like physician judgment and, and what we call shared decision-making with patients. We, we would say to patients, you know, usually what you would do in that situation is you wouldn't say, oh, you didn't meet 15, 1%, you didn't, but you'd say that you would have a, what we call a discussion with patients. You would, you would be honest and say, look, you, you're, you're, you're close. You're really close. You're not quite at the threshold. Your risk may still be increased maybe not quite as much as 15 or more, but you know you need to know that it's more than if it was five and decide basically in a kind of discussion like that, whether that represents the 14%, a risk that's increased enough for that patient to consider treatment with the device. So we don't ignore, but we have a conversation, you know, understanding the strengths and limitations of the information. Are there any other types of cardiac imaging that are used regularly in HCM or used occasionally in HCM? I think somebody's getting called to be a doctor right now. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> I forgot at noon um, to call me over there. Uh, we'll we'll it, wrap up in just a moment. <laughs> yeah, sorry. That's okay. Um, so there can be cardiac CT studies can be used sometimes to look at the arteries. If a patient with HCM has chest pain, and you want to make sure they don't have coronary artery disease. That's sometimes used to exclude coronary artery disease, CT scans. Um, uh, hold on one sec. Sorry. <laughs> Hello? Busy life of a doctor. If you have any questions, post them now because it looks like we're going to lose him soon. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm going to have to go. I got a call. I got to take. I'm sorry. I thought it was noon that we had a recalling, so I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll block off more time next time. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you, Dr. Marin. I'm going to wrap up. You can just log off and I'll address some of the questions. So the busy life of a doctor, we got a little bit of a late start, but um, we uh, lost him there, but we got through all of the critical issues. So a number of you were asking questions that I think were answered uh, as we were going through the conversation. So I was kind of keeping up on those. If you see me looking down, I'm watching my phone because it's easier to do it that way. So uh, Dr. Marin has given us a lot of information about echocardiograms and the history of echo and what they're really looking for, what numbers are important for you, um, when to move to a TEE, and when to look at a cardiac MRI. So I think all of these are really critically important technologies for the majority of people to use. And he also mentioned CT scans, which are less commonly used, but can be utilized in HCM. So it's kind of a summary of what we discussed today. Um, I think what the take-home messages today are is to know some numbers. Um, and we talked about knowing your wall measurements, knowing your gradient, knowing your left atrial dimension, your ejection fraction, and knowing the condition of your mitral valve. So these are five features that you should track. Don't obsess and live by your numbers, but keep an eye on these numbers and speak with your uh uh, HCM Center, I hope you're going to uh, HCMA Recognized Center of Excellence or a large HCM program for your care because they're going to be the ones that are better at reading these and having specific technologies um, and protocols in place to ensure that they get the best quality images. So um, an echo isn't an echo, an MRI isn't an MRI. It really matters what the protocols are and how they're looking at the numbers. And, you know, he talked about gradient, and I want to spend just a minute on this before I conclude today. 
getting a gradient is a tricky process. And if you've not done a lot of um, HCM work as a sonographer or as a, a cardiologist, you may not know all the tricks to find the gradient the proper way. And it can be a real challenge for patients who are having symptoms related to an, a higher gradient, but it's not being seen in the imaging. So their local cardiologist can tend to ignore the symptoms or not get to the root of the problem very easily. So by doing the echocardiographic uh, work at a high-level center, that's one way. We didn't talk about stress echocardiogram, which would basically be to be putting you on a stress test and doing an echo before and after to see how physiologic stress actually increases your gradient. So that is another mechanism, but it, it's still using the same imaging technology. So I hope you got a better understanding of imaging in HCM today. I'm sorry Dr. Marin had to, to run away, but he is a busy doctor, and we have an hour a month to have these conversations, and we got a little late start, so sorry about that. Um, any other last-minute questions before I depart? I'm going to check. Most relevant, newest. Um, nope, doesn't look like I've got anything new here today. Hello to everybody who said hello, and I'm glad that you joined us again. We'll be here back in two weeks with Dr. Harry Lever, right off the top of my head. I can't remember what our topic is. And then we'll be back with Dr. Marin uh, in a month. And at that time, I suspect that we will have the new HCM guidelines. So we're going to have a, an in-depth conversation about the new guidelines. Um, so I would encourage you all to, to keep track of Tales from the Heart and uh, the updates from the HCMA. Have a great day. Have a great weekend. It's finally Friday, but we'll be working tomorrow at the HCMA because we are doing our big-hearted tour from UCSF, also known as from my desk here in New Jersey and their desks out in California. Thank you, COVID. So uh, I encourage you to register if you haven't done so already right here on the HCMA Facebook page. Join us tomorrow afternoon for a very interesting conversation we're going to go more um, futuristic and research and talk about some bench science and some practical application of new modalities. So um, if you want to jump to the future with me tomorrow, come on and join us again right here. We'll be, we'll be filtering through here, but if you want to ask questions and participate, you've got to sign up for the webinar and join us in the webinar. Have a great day, have a safe weekend, and we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Heart. For more information on HCM, we encourage you to visit our website at 4hcm.org. Join us online for the conversation on our Facebook page or in our private group. Facebook page can be found at Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And our Instagram handle is at 4hcmwarriors. That's the number 4hcmwarriors. Follow us on Twitter at 4hcm.org. For those members of the LinkedIn community, you may want to follow the conversation on the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association group. Join us today. We would like to thank our sponsors, Myocardia, Invitae, Boston Scientific, and Cytokinetics for their support of this program. Please remember to sign up for the HCM Strong Tour, Big Hearted Warriors Unite. Our virtual tour will begin September 3rd and include dates September 17th, October 8th, October 10th, October 24th, October 29th, November 12th, December 3rd, and December 10th. A few other events will be added. Check the updated registration information at 4hcm.org. Hope to see you at one of our upcoming meetings.
The HCMA is partnering with Myocardia, 23andMe, and others to help learn more about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Learn more about these initiatives at 4hcm.org. Invitae, a genetic testing company and a sponsor of Tales from the Heart, is proud to provide free genetic testing to families with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Please learn more at 4hcm.org. Hey, we know life with HCM can be challenging, and support is critical. That's why the HCMA has created an online support group system to help you and your loved ones live better with HCM. Join us. The HCMA is seeking volunteers on a number of different projects, including our online support group system, our peer-to-peer, big-hearted friend system, and our legislative subcommittee. Please visit 4HCM.org to learn more today. To contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, you can call 973-983-7429. You can email us at support at 4HCM.org or visit us online at our website, 4HCM.org, and send us an email from there. The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association is located in New Jersey and operates on East Coast time. 